Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today we're happy to have Paul Andrews in the host chair, chatting with Bentall Greeno co-CEO, Sonny Kalsi. The two covered a lot of ground at CFA Institute's recent asset and risk allocation summit, starting with Sonny's views on the outlook for both office real estate and the regional banks who finance them, and branching out to cover the best places to invest in this environment. And they finish up with discussions later about DEI and ESG. Bentall Green Oak is the real estate arm of Sun Life Financial and one of the largest real estate investment firms in North America. As mentioned, our interviewer this week is Paul Andrews. Paul oversees the strategic direction and leadership of the research, advocacy, and standards function at CFA Institute. Enjoy the episode. Well, Sonny, welcome to our uh, uh, session today, and thanks for spending a few minutes together, and I'm looking forward to it. Happy to do it, Paul. Thank you. And we're going to, I think, cover a few sets of issues, if that's all right with you, because there's so much uh, happening in the, in the world today, as you know, and certainly around... Uh, systemic risk and things of that nature. And I want to start there, if that yep. is okay with yep. you. And sure. uh, clearly we've seen a lot of bank failures of late and uh, big concerns about real estate and commercial real estate holdings that uh, many of these banks have. You know, in the past, I know that that's something that you've, you've, you've thought about in terms of regional banks in yep. particular, yep. and looking at their portfolios of large real estate holdings. And I'm, and I'm wondering how are you looking at that? And, and, and where do, what do you see as the end game, particularly from both the systemic risk angle as well as the banking angle? Yeah. So I'll take a step back as I answer it. So we go back to the financial crisis, right? Dodd-Frank came into in, in, in place. And I would argue one of the things that Dodd-Frank encouraged the big banks to do was to be more cautious about lending to real estate. So a lot of them have pulled back. If you look at their lending to commercial real estate, especially, it's gone down 100 percentage basis. So who filled the breach? Uh, the non-bank sector popped up to help build that breach. So non-bank lenders many times getting repo financing from those same big banks, but it got treated differently. But then the regional banks, the smaller banks. And so regional banks have provided a huge amount of real estate lending. And then I would, then when the regulations changed in 2018, in terms of lowering, lowering the bar, raising the bar, however you want to think about other regional banks, commercial real estate lending was one of the areas that grew a lot. So I don't have the data at the top of my, my uh, you know, whatever, but I would say that the way we kind of generally think about it is come regional banks are probably at least a third of the real estate lending that's been going on um, and have been a big part of the incremental real estate lending that's been going on for the last five years. So there's two issues. One is going to be just losing that, right? So before we talk about legacy books on a go forward basis, I mean, the biggest issue we have in real estate right now is there's no liquidity. There's no debt liquidity. There's equity, but there's no financing available. So where the big banks aren't providing it, the regional banks are no, now no longer providing it. A lot of the debt funds or the private market lenders, their numbers only work if they can get financing, and they can't get repo financing on their book right now. And they're worried about their legacy loan books, right? So they're worried about their legacy loan books. And now your lo the long answer to your question, I think the regional banks have a fair amount of exposure there. Um, now, when we talk about commercial real estate, it's a big category. Mm -hmm. So there are parts of it that are going to be less of an issue. Industrial, multifamily should be less of an issue. Multifamily is also buoyed by the agencies that provide financing. Um, office is the big, it's not even the canary in the coal mine. It is the 800-pound gorilla sitting squarely in the middle of the room. <laughs> So what do they do with these books? I mean, what, what are the regional banks going to do? And, and are we just sitting on another time bomb, do you think? Yeah, I think, look, it could be a time bomb, but I think it's going to be a, a time bomb with a long fuse. Um, 
uh, you know, unlike a security, which is, um, you know, that's got a, it's a short-term duration security, which has to be rolled over into a capital market, et cetera. A lot of these loans aren't set up that way. And so <laughs> the banks have to pull the trigger to actually create the default issue themselves. So there are plenty of assets right now that are in technical default. They might be lack of compliance with different covenants, maturity defaults, et cetera, where a lot of the banks are just rolling them over because they know that their borrowers are not, in this kind of illiquid market, not in a great position to refinance them. So the regulators will play a big part here. It'll be interesting to see how they approach this, right? You could argue that on the one hand, they've caused this by the interest rate environment, right? I mean, caught a lot of people flat-footed. We didn't think rate. I didn't think rates were going to go up at the pace that they grew up. They grew, but we thought rates were going up. And so I'm a little bit surprised that some of these lenders got caught as flat-footed as they did. If the regulators force them to have to mark this, mark those positions, then I think you're going to see, then you could see something pretty ugly. Um, if the regulators take it easy on them and give them time, then I think this is going to be a slow process, right? Not quite the same context, but I'll use retail as an example, because I, I say jokingly that office has replaced retail as the worst six-letter word in real estate, right? Because 10 years ago, this was retail, right? There was a retail apocalypse, and no one was shopping in stores anymore. It was all Amazon and whatever. So what's happened to retail? Um, asset values are down 30 to 50% over the last 10 years. A bunch of tenants have gone bankrupt, which means actually for the tenants that are still around, they have less competition. Um, and we've added 1% to supply, right? The thing that generally kills real estate markets is oversupply, right? Right. We've added 1% to supply. So actually retail has actually found its footing a little bit and is doing okay. I think that's what's going to happen with office. But remember I said 10 years, right? So this is going to be a, the office is going to take a while to find its footing. The lenders and the investors in, the, in that space are also going to therefore have to decide if they're going to be patient to work mm -hmm. through that. The regulators are going to have to decide if they're going to be patient to work through that or not. So do you think if we're patient, we won't face another huge systemic risk event? I hope so. I hope that I hope we don't face another huge systemic risk event. If, you know, there are certain lenders, I, I'm, I'll, I'll, intentionally I'm not going to name names, but there are certain lenders out there, you can look up their loan books and you can see you know, there's some that have 30 and 40% of their book is commercial real estate. Those, those, those banks have issues, right? When we talk about the banks that have failed, right? Silicon Valley Bank was first, got a lot of press. It's, you know, the, the tax base. First Republic now, you know, which my wife is especially upset about because she loves First Republic Bank because they actually return her phone call and all those things. I focus the most on Signature Bank, right? Because Signature actually had a ton of real estate exposure. Signature was brought down by his real estate book. Um, by the way, not office, mostly residential in New York City, rent-controlled residential where the regulatory environment changed in 2019 and it went from being a market that was difficult to raise rents in, but possible to being one where the legislature just shut it down. And you could argue though, overnight those assets were down 30 to 50% in value. And if you had a loan that was 70% loan to value, that loan was impaired and that wiped out signature. Right? Cause, and you know, so that would have to happen to these other banks. There'd have to be some kind of event like that that would have to wipe out part of their loan book. Yeah, I think for there to be a systemic issue with them. Look, I'm not a banking expert. I, I, you know, if I were a betting man, which I am, uh, I don't think we're done with three banks. I think we're going to see more. I, I think you're probably right about that. Let me, though, ask you, in the sense of, C or in the case of CFA Institute, 
our membership is, is made up of asset owners, it's asset allocators, it's intermediaries, et cetera. I'm just wondering, like, how would you look at this issue from their point of view? Yeah. I mean, in terms of, yeah. from a practical point of view, yeah. I mean, what should they be focused on, do yeah. you think? I think a couple of things. Right, so some of them own assets on a direct basis, some of them probably indirectly, whether it's through the REIT market or whether it's through fund managers like us. Uh, I think one, you got to just say, do I have the, you know, do I have the right people managing the ship yeah. for me right now? I think that's part of it. Um, so that's number one. Number two, um, you know, how do I think about the asset class? Like, how do I think about it on a, you know, uh, like one, one thing we hear a lot of right now is the denominator effect, right? Equity markets are down. Therefore, you know, alternatives now represent a bigger percentage of most of these folks, you know, portfolios. Is that a bad thing? Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe is that maybe a direction where people should be going? You know, Paul, just at, at, at the moment, we're talking about defense, right? We're talking about what do we do about our existing portfolios? How do we think about that? How do we manage our way through it? I think that the GFC, one thing that was clearly informative of is the people that had more time wound up with a better recovery value than people that had to do a forced sale. But the flip side of this is offense, right? At a time where we talk about all this pain that's out there, there's also some great investing opportunities. For example, it's a great time to be a lender right now. If you can be a lender right now, and by the way, you know, people like us, we have a big loan, lending is about 25% of what we do. It's a great time to put new capital to work in that space. So I think part of this is how do existing investors and the CFAs, how do you think about playing defense on what you own? How do you think about doing on offense as well? Interesting, very interesting. Um, I want to cover two other subjects with you, if, 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 you, if we can, in our time together. And the first is around DEI, yep. diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and, and you've been a strong advocate of, of DEI. And in fact, you're a signatory to the CFA Institute yep. DEI code. Yep. And just, I wanted to get your view on, you know, why did BGO sign the code? What are you doing about it? And, and have you seen any benefits from, from being a signatory? Yeah, no, look, I think, um... To me, it's just something that's critically important. You know, just I'll personalize it, right? I'm, my family is originally from India. We immigrated to the U.S. when I was three years old. Um, so, you know, I've lived this. I've lived being a, I don't love the term minority, but I'm living a minority in the United States growing up in Tennessee. And, you know, starting on Wall Street in, in 1990 when it was a lot less diverse than it is today. It's not diverse enough yet. We're going in the right direction. Um, so it's a lived experience. So that's number one. Number two, it's been proven time and again, you know, McKinsey, a bunch of other stuff that more diverse teams perform better. For sure, been shown that, you know, public companies that have more diverse boards, mm -hmm. whether that's governance or that's the S or the G, how outperforms our performance. So to me, it's this confluence of it's good business and it's something that's critical to do. But to me, it's also personally the right thing to do. Uh, when we talk about it as a company, we actually talk about EDI, not DEI. And the reason is we start with equity first, because I candidly believe it's hard to get to diversity and inclusion without equity first, mm. right? You have to have equity. Uh, well, so what does that mean? I, I would use a different word for it, fairness. You got to, what can you do to try to level the playing field more? In my, in my definition, level the playing field is not bringing someone down, it's bringing other people up and giving them an opportunity to then be in the part of a more diverse, you know, environment. But then the I is important too, which is inclusion, right? It's not enough for them to, you know, to have a more diverse team. They have to be included. They have to be included in the investment process. They have to be included in, in that entire process. So I think this is something that is um, it's critically, personally important to me. 
it's also really good business. Um, I like that they, they, there's a confluence there. Um, uh, and look, there's a lot of headwinds to EFG broadly right now and, 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 uh, and EDI as well. I think these are short-term things because I think the benefits of them will be, you know, are, are clear and will be proven to be very clear, certainly on a backward-looking basis. Well, you mentioned you mentioned ESG, and I want to pivot to, to, to our final topic around that. And and in the past, I've heard you say that that, and going back to our first uh, topic on on commercial real estate, that real estate accounts for forty percent or something along yeah. those lines of carbon emissions today, yeah. more than the automotive industry. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm wondering. I mean, a I'm intrigued by that. Number one, it surprises two, most people. And number two, I mean, what would you like, how can investors be get, be, get involved in that discussion to try to help bring that number down if they're so inclined? Right. So, yeah, I think that I think the data, that, that number surprises a lot of people. So real estate is responsible for 40 percent of the carbon emissions in the world. 30 percent is through operations, like we have an air conditioner blowing right here. 10 percent is through construction, like concrete is a lot, got a lot of carbon in it, et cetera. Transportation industry, I think, is 20 percent. So we're double that. Which just, I mean, people would assume airplanes have got to be much worse, right? So I look at it like I'm an optimist. So I believe this is, I view this as a glasses half full type of opportunity. We're a big part of the problem. We can be a big part of the solution. And candidly, you know, even when they're, even when people are talking about ESG being woke and whatever else, I don't hear anyone out there pounding the table saying we need more carbon emissions. Like that, there's not a big, we need more carbon emissions lobby. Clearly there's a, we can't dump fossil fuels, et cetera. People have their own points of view. And I actually agree with them. I actually don't believe. I think energy transition is going to take time. And so it's unrealistic to assume we don't need natural gas to transition to a cleaner future. Um, there's a lot of attention on this now, right? There's a lot of focus on this. Investors, Investment managers have made their intentions really clear. We've also signed the Net Zero, uh, Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative as well. Uh, we take some heat for that in, in certain circles, uh, in certain geographies. Um, but I, we believe that actually, um, back to my earlier comment, it's good business. Mm -hmm. um, assets, increasingly, when we have an asset, we have a tenant looking at it. It is very clear part of their charter that they want to be in a cleaner building. Mm -hmm. um, that's a U.S. company, much less a international company. It's even higher on their list. So it's important to companies, it's important to their employees support to my employees. Um, it's also important to institutional investors. I, I don't find a lot of institutional investors who are lining up to buy older buildings that are not up to standard. And so I think there's a real risk you're going to have stranded assets that no one wants to touch, especially in the future. If you think about a future where you know our grids become renewable, power, et cetera. So I think for an investor, for you know, it's it's easy. There's a lot of data out there right now. People have been very clear about their intentions. There's a lot of measurement is key here, and that's the thing that where technology is. There's a big confluence going on between technology and this, because all of a sudden you can now measure outcomes. And you can say, if I do the following things, what is this building doing, et cetera. So I look, I'm an optimist on the topic, and I think that uh, it would, this was a lot harder ten years ago because then you could say I have these good intentions, but how do I know what am I getting here? Now the data is all out there, right? And the people that are saying this is important to them are also very publicly saying it. I give, you know, I'm a big fan of Larry Finks. I give him a lot of credit for, you know, he's he's been a little bit of a lightning rod on this, but he has he has not wavered in what he's saying here. And I think we need to see leadership like that 
to get to the right place. Yeah. Well, great. Well, that's a great place to end on an optimistic yeah. note. So, Sonny, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope we can do this again and maybe talk about some other uh, issues around systemic risk, around banking, around commercial real estate, around just transition. The topics go on and on. So, uh, Thank you. Very happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Paul Andrews in conversation with Sonny Kalsi, co-CEO of Bentall Green Oak. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.